0: invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to that James passage in James 4. I take it as a providence providence of God. We've been in this James service uh, sermon series a long time and the text today on friend day happens to be about friendship. So uh, take that from the Lord I I suppose this morning. I don't know if you've ever heard this statement but I want to start off with it. Tell me who your friends are, and I will tell you who you are. Now, that saying basically means that your friends are a reflection of who you are. I think it's obvious that we tend to hang around people that we have something in common with, and that's what I thought in my friendship with David Baker. Back in the day, when I went to junior high school, I know it's middle school now, but way back before schools had buildings. No, I'm just kidding. There was junior high school, and every morning I'd walk down around the corner from my house, and I'd stand at the bus stop, and I got to know a guy named David Baker. Um, David Baker was funny, he was crazy, but he wasn't a good friend. He got me into things, and notice I am blaming him. Um, He got me to do things I should never have done, got me in trouble, actually. And One time we were standing at the bus stop, and he said, look what I have, and he held out a hand. A little handful of firecrackers and he said come on we're gonna put them and right the bus stop there was a, a family's house there uh, right in front of their driveway so he said let's put these firecrackers in their gutter because it was like 7 15 in the morning he goes and we'll have a long fuse and when we get on the bus we'll be driving away and they'll go off in the gutters and wake them up and they'll it'll be so funny I said oh, I don't know he goes come on I go okay <laughs> took a lot right So we lit the firecrackers off, we're on the bus, we're going We hear all up the gutters, the guy opened the door in his pajamas, he's going like this, yelling, screaming, and of course the bus driver saw us do all of it, I don't know what we were thinking, but I got in big trouble for that. Also, when it turned wintertime, David Baker got me to stand around after everybody left the bus stop and throw snowballs at cars, we hit this one lady's car so hard that she got out, she was crying. And everything else and, and of course everyone ran and i went to run and i fell down in the snow she got my name she called my dad my dad came home from work my dad took me over and walk, walked me knocked on the door and had me say i'm sorry i apologize she didn't accept the apology she was still crying she yelled at me and slammed the door in front of me and my dad that was david baker no that was actually me But see, I was a reflection. I was a reflection of my friend David Baker. I chose to be like him, have him as my friend. It's not very flattering, is it? But it's true. It's it's how it was. And, And see, in our text today, James is telling his readers, hear me, and he's telling us that, see, we are a reflection of our friends. Our faith is a reflection of our friendship either with God or our friendship with the world. See, back in James 2.23, we've already covered this verse, but it says that Abraham was the friend of God, James 2.23. Now, Abraham was the friend of God for this reason, because we've established this principle that your friendship with someone is a reflection of your relationship with them. And so James says that Abraham's friendship with God was a reflection of his faith in God. That's why he loved God. He had a deep affection for God. In fact, it says in that very same text, James 2.21, that he showed how he was the friend of God by offering up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, see, later... Later, centuries later, God would offer up his son Jesus on the cross. And see, Abraham and his actions and the way that he lived his life, in particular offering up his son, was a reflection of what God would do. See, they were friends because Abraham rightly reflected God in his relationship with him. Now, take that, James says, of Abraham being the friend of God and contrast that in the text that we have before us this morning. And the key phrase is that you can be a friend of the world. See, James 2 is all about telling us what the life of someone who is a friend of God looks like. But what we're going to cover this morning in James chapter 4, he's going to tell us, see, if you are not the friend of God, but you're the friend of the world, see, there will be things that mark your life. There'll be things that are characteristic of who you are, because the friendship you have is a reflection of who you are. And James says, as you read this text this morning, he would want you to do this. He wants you to reflect on the friendship that you really have. He wants you to ask yourself the question, am I the friend of God or am I the friend of the world? Because as we've been saying in this series, a real faith, James would say, is a non-fiction faith. It means it's real, it's genuine, it's authentic. So I would tell you this morning that a non-fiction faith is a non-friendship faith. And by that, I mean this. James is going to say that a friendship with God is twofold. One, it's positive. You are the friend of God. But it's also negative. You are not the friend of the world. See, a a non-fiction faith, a real one, is a non-friendship faith. It's not friends with the world. And here's what James wants you to get right off the bat. Listen, you can't be both. They are antithetical. They are completely polar opposites of one another. And James wants you to get it in your mind this morning. It's one or the other. You have to decide this morning, am I the friend of God on friend day? Or am I really the friend of the world? So let me break it down for you because James does a great job. Three ways that someone reflects their friendship with the world, if that's truly what's going on in their lives. The first one, if you look at verse 1 with me, James says, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? See, the first mark of a friend of the world is that there are conflicts with others. Conflicts with others. James 3 ended with this. Look at 3.17. Notice the contrast. The wisdom from above is pure and underlined, peaceable. See, and then in verse 18, he says peace again. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. Of those who make peace. You see, the friend of the world is someone, the friend of God is someone who uses God's wisdom. And you know what it's marked by? Peace. But the opposite is true. If you are not the friend of God, but the friend of the world, you're not marked by peace, you're marked by war. You're at conflict. And James says the first mark of that conflict is you're at conflict with everybody else. See, have you ever met someone that they're not happy unless they're miserable, unless they're getting in an argument, unless they have something in opposing someone else? Have you ever met someone like that? I mean, that's why James uses war terminology. Quarrels, fights. Look at your text. At war, murder, fight, quarrel. See, everything for certain people is a major issue. There are no minor issues. It doesn't matter what it is. They don't have the ability to differentiate between what is really important and what is far less important. Because if it's according to their agenda and what they want, see, they're going to fight over it as if it's major importance. See, James puts his finger on it. Remember what he says? This is about being a friend of the world. And too often in our circles, we pin down worldliness as only defined by separational issues. Like, hey, do you dance to really bad music? Do you get drunk? Do you have, you know, and all those types of things. But you notice in this, James doesn't define worldliness as any of those separational issues. You know what they are for him? Relational issues. See, how many times have you said, oh, I think I've been coming too worldly. I need to treat other people better. Who says that? James does. James does. So it's not worldliness, it's not just things of the flesh. No, it's relational things," he says. And I'm sure this morning that it hasn't escaped your attention about how much conflict is in our world today. I mean, literally in every conceivable level in our society, there's conflict. There's conflict in families. There's conflict. Did you watch the the news where the guy and the girl were boyfriend-girlfriend and they were on the trip and seemingly, not for sure, but seemingly he killed her, left her in a canyon, and they can't find him either? I mean, it's conflict in relationships, families, marriages. There's conflicts when you go to work. There's conflicts when you go home. There's conflicts in politics. I was in Chicago recently, walking downtown with a reunion with my sisters, and there were protesters, and they were protesting. They were protesting. You can't. And they're protesting the vaccines, whether you should take it or not. There's there's protest and conflict about COVID nineteen. There's conflicts about immigration, gender, abortion, sexuality. I mean, it's never ending. Why? Because that's what our world is all about. Our world is all about, the very system that is this, our, our world is about, is about conflicts. And let me tell you this, that's only on a micro level between people. But it also happens on a macro level between nations. I mean, just watch the news. You've got the conflict in Afghanistan. You've got North Korea looking like they're building up their nuclear armament. You've got conflict between China and Japan. And on and on and on it goes. See, that's our world. Our world is built on conflict. But James says this, watch it. It's not just everybody out there. It could be some of us in here. So he asks the question, where does it come from? Where do the quarrels and the fights come from? What is the source? Where does all this hatred, hostility, animosity, anger, and rage, where does it originate? And here's what James says, all the fighting in the world comes because you're a friend of the world, see? See, the conflicts and you being involved in them, they are markers, they are reflections that you're a friend of the world because that's the kind of life you live. James says, do they not come? Is it not, listen to this, is it not your passions, your passions at war? among you or within you that you want something so bad that you have to have it even if you have to run over people to get it and the word at war is the word we get our english word polemic you know what a polemic is it is a reasoned argument a polemic that's what he says you're polemical that you're always finding a reason to argue to have conflict so that you can get your way and it's not just individual things the, the word quarrel is about individual fights, but the warring and the fighting part is about bigger battles that are constantly going on. I mean, it's just ongoing in your life. He says that can happen out, not only out in the world, but that happens in the church when we let the world inside. That's why he uses the vocabulary of violence. War and murder and fight and quarrel. I don't think he's talking about they were murdering each other in church. Not physical violence, but relational conflict. See, that's what happens with us when we buy the world's philosophy. YOLO, you only live once. We have that philosophy that it's my, my purposes and my life and what I want that matters the most. He says it's your controlled by your... And he uses the word passions. It's the English word hedonism. You know what hedonism is? It's when you pursue as your number one priority, your own pleasures. When you want what you want, and it doesn't matter what everybody else says or what's best for everybody else, he says when you are hedonistic, you pursue priority number one. As the comedian I listened to once in a while, he said, you have the me monster. You ever seen someone with the me monster? I, couple, I, I counseled a couple in marriage. They hadn't been married very long. Many, many years ago. And they were having trouble because the husband was really, really selfish. To the point where his wife was pregnant, and she was in the hospital, and I was visiting her, and I told him that he needed to come up here because he needed to apologize and ask her forgiveness for the level of selfishness that he had, especially while his wife is pregnant. I mean, she was literally within weeks of delivering and he came in the room, and he was defiant. He wasn't going to apologize. And I told him how wrong it was, and he took his, ring, his, his wedding ring off and threw it at me. And he walked out. I found out later that the reason was is that he was on drugs. He, he was so controlled by his passions. His number one priority was not to glorify God. It was to glorify self. See, That's what was happening in his life, and that was the pattern of his life. You know why? Because he was a friend of the world. That's what the world is like. Polarized passions. You say one thing... I'm the friend of God, but your passions indicate a completely other thing. I've seen that worldliness and selfishness always go hand in hand. I've seen it between husbands and wives. I've seen it between parents and teenagers. I've seen it between white people and black people, Democrats and Republicans. I've watched it happen on the social media. I've read about it in people's remarks to one another. Embarrassing. They think the worst. They accuse people without ever talking to them and getting the facts first. There is no dialogue anymore because we already believe the worst about people. And on and on it goes. That's the pattern of conflict in our world. And too often, it's unfortunate that it even happens amongst God's people. Why? Because it's a reflection. See, it's a reflection of being a friend of the world. That's what James says. That's the first mark. So he says, take a look at your life. Is your life marked by a pattern of conflict with people over things that are issues only for you? Secondly, he says, not only a pattern of conflict with others, but a worldly person, a, world that a friend of the world will be, have conflict with self. See, you read the next verse, verse 2, and it reads this. You desire and do not have... So you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. See, there's that word again. In verse 1, it was your own passions, right? And he says it again in verse 3. You're so hedonistic. But he wants to tell us now, where does the hedonism, the priority number one, making yourself the me monster, where does that all come from? Why are you having so many external conflicts with people unnecessarily? Why is that there? He says it's because the battle on the outside is only a manifestation of the battle going on the inside, he says. And, and, and let me tell you this, James wants you to know, don't try to just staple better habits and better techniques on the outside. See, changing hedonism and conflict on the outside that comes from the inside cannot be altered or morphed by some sort of deeds thing going on. No, You can't change it at the deeds level. Because you go home and you say, oh, Pastor Walker, you're right, I'm going to stop yelling at my wife. I'm going to do better at that. Oh, you know, I go from zero to 60, and my anger, my temper is so awful sometimes. I, you know, I've, my parents told me that. My friends have told me that. My family's told me that. You know what? I'm going to really, really work on that this time. I've got to watch what I say. You know, the words come out of my mouth sometimes. I can't even believe it myself. See, that's not where this... This battle can't be won on Reformation behavioral modification. It, is, it won't be changed at the deeds level because being a friend of the world affects the core of who you are see it has to be changed at the desires level do you see what he's saying do you see it he says that's what you do why because you spend it on your own passions it's your desires you have to come to the conclusion you know why i do this because this is who i am this is the deep down me this is the real me this is the desires i have this desire and he calls them murderous desires that's pretty serious you murder, he says. You covet, meaning I really want this so bad. I want to have this. Covetous desires. And then he calls him, watch out for religious people here. Godless desires. He says, you know what? You want things so bad. You know what you do? First off, you don't even pray to God. You don't ask so you don't have. So you, either, you, you leave God completely out of the, uh, uh, you know, you don't pray about what you're going to say and how you're going to handle people. You just do it. You leave them out. And then, oh, yeah, I really probably shouldn't do that. So you start asking him, and he doesn't answer that either. You know why? Because the only reason you're asking him is so that you'll talk him into giving you what you want. Tozer calls that God being the utilitarian God, that you just kind of use him. Prayer isn't a relationship with you. See, prayer is what you can get out of God. So you're not really interested in what he wants you to do and how he wants you to live, but what you can get out of him so that you can get him to give you what you want. See, that kind of motivation, that kind of passions, uncontrolled desires, those are marks of people who are friends of the world. And I don't think it would take too much for me this morning to try to convince you that we live in a culture that is struggling mightily with internal conflict. I mean, it's honestly painfully obvious how much of an issue this is in our world today. I mean, look at the proliferation of mental illness, psychologists, psychiatry, counselors, therapists, psychotherapists, and on and on it goes. Why do we have so many? Why are people taking, you know, making so much out of this? Why are they spending so much money? You know why? Because all of these people are in trying to help others get past the intense inner conflict that they have every single day my heart goes out to all the people and the amazing number of people. Can I say it to you? The millions of people, including young people below the age of 10 who have internal conflict and try to counteract it every single day. They face stress and anxiety and depression and loneliness and rejection and fear, and too often, and I 've talked to many of them they try to alleviate all of those internal conflicts, and they try to use drugs and drunkenness and sex and money and power, and even, yes, sometimes, terribly, they use suicide. But see, the conflict on the outside of us is only a manifestation of the battle going on inside of us. And what is that war? What is it that they would do all these things? What is it they want so badly? What is it that you want so badly? You know what it is? I want to be satisfied. I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled. And so we lust and we crave and the ambitions we have. But we, over time, come to the realization that all those things that we really, really want and think that would really make our life what they ought to be, they elude us. It seems like at every corner we are thwarted to find the true happiness that we're really looking for. And did you notice in the text? And I want to point out to you, please look at the text. In verses 2, 3, and 4, watch the phrases that start with the word not. Not have, twice in verse 2. Not obtain, not ask, not receive, not know. You know why James just piles up the negative Because here's what's true. Selfish desires are frustrated desires. Do you understand that? See, uncontrolled passions... And unfulfilled desires, they go together. You want all of these things, and you go out the worldly way of getting them all, and you never really get them. You don't obtain them. You don't receive them. God doesn't answer your prayers. You begin to say, what's up, God? And some people turn their back on Him because of it. And have you ever said to yourself, if I could only have... Fill in the blank. If this this one thing would just happen in my life, it would turn everything around, and it is... I don't know why this always happens to me. See, it's emptiness, isn't it? See, friendship with the world promises so much. This next job, this next promotion, this really pretty girlfriend, this fancy car, living in this neighborhood... Having this notoriety and popularity, see, it promises so much and delivers so little. See, we become a slave to those passions. They begin to control us and they dictate us. And when we don't get them, we get more angry, more mad. And that's where the conflicts come from. And then when we actually finally get some of what we want, we turn around like Tom Brady who won six Super Bowls and says, is this really it? It's empty. There is no lasting love, can I be frank? There is no lasting love or friendship at the end of a needle, the bottom of a bottle, the top of the social ladder, or in somebody else's bed. There isn't. Jeremiah says it this way in his prophecy. He says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, the source, and have hewed out for themselves cisterns or wells, broken cisterns that can hold no water See, James. here's what Jeremiah says. You pour water in the well in a desert climate because it's your life, and you just can't get enough because the more you pour in, the more that goes out the bottom. That is our world system. That's what the friendship of the world gives you. It gives you a well with a hole in the bottom, and you put more into it, more hours, more at your job, higher degrees, more education, all those things. You get all those things, and you know what? You have to keep putting in because it never literally satisfies. It keeps running out the bottom. And you, so you have to work harder, and the little wheel spins harder in the cage, and you have to go faster. You have to uh, appease more people, and never really get you where you want. See, James says, stop right where you are this morning in your life. Take a look into your heart and be honest. Which friendship really drives you? Which one, friend of God? a friend of the world. But see, those first two, as bad as they are, the first two marks of being a friend of the world, conflict with others and conflict with yourself, as bad as they are, they're not the worst one because James says it really is reaching a climax. It reaches a crescendo. And you know what the worst mark, the most dangerous mark of being a friend of the world is not just conflict with others or yourself. It's conflict with God. And that's what verses 4 through 6 say. You adulterous people, I mean, that is a definitive and decisive statement as you could say. I mean, these words, you adulterous people, that is frightening and foreboding at the exact same time. It's the key verse. Friendship with the world is like an adulterous relationship, God says. How is that true? Listen to me. The only time, the only people in the Bible who were called adulterous in the Old Testament is Israel, and they were God's people, some of them. So you know what the problem is and the danger of, and why it's so frightening and foreboding to be a friend of the world? Because it's usually religious people, kind of like most of us, who come to church and bring their Bibles and sit in the pews. See, Israel was God's people. They had the scriptures. They had the revelation. They had God's promises. They knew the miraculous things that had taken place. They knew all that stuff. They had that understanding. But yet they were friends of the world. He says, see, you're acting like Israel. You say you know God, but your life is an adulterous life. It's not faithful to God. You're cheating on Him in the way that you live, he says. So he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world, enmity with God, enmity with Then he says, you know, if you make yourself the friend of the world, you are the enemy of God. I mean, how much stronger can he say? That's just a shot across our spiritual bow, isn't it? I mean, that says, wake up. Wake up, he says. See, friend is a word philia. We get the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly or friendly love, right? Hardly. It's not just an emotional attachment he's not talking about being a facebook friend see the word philly is very associated with the word philadelphia and it means to kiss so you know what it means in the bible it means someone that you're attached to This is not, James isn't saying, hey, once in a while you do something worldly, incidentally, occasionally, no or infrequently. He's talking about people whose lives are patterned by a strong love that has determined actions, the basis on which you make your choices in life, how you see your money and your time and your priorities. He says, see, it's... You have a common interest that the world has. The common concerns of the world are yours concerns. Their interests are your, their values, the world's values and morals are your values and morals. So Abraham was a friend of God. Why? Because he had a deep affection for God that characterized his life. Jesus, in Matthew eleven nineteen 19, was called friend of sinners. Why? Because Jesus had a deep affection for lost people who needed salvation. That's why they called him their friend. On Jesus' day that he was crucified... Pilate and Herod got together, and before it says that day, they hated each other. In fact, it uses the word James used, enmity. They didn't like each other. They considered themselves enemies. But you know what? That day it came, and and Luke 23, 12 says, on that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. That's the word used. Why? Because you know why they came together? They had a common interest. Jesus' death. See, that made them friends. So when the Bible says, when James says, you're a friend of the world, it's because you have a common interest. The world's interests are yours. You think like they think. You feel like they feel. You act like they act. You desire what they desire. See, that's what he's saying. And I would guess this morning if we took a survey and went around the auditorium and said, hey, are you the friend of God? I think most of us would say, yeah, Pastor Walker, I'm pretty friendly with God. If God had a Facebook page, I think I'd be on his friend list. I really think I would be. And you'd convince me, you'd say, I'm not openly hostile to God. I'm not hostile to the concept of God. Pastor Walker, am I not in church today on friend day? And the scary thing is that you can do all of that and still be at conflict with God. In fact, you can thank you're God's friend and you're really his enemy. And you have to ask, don't you? If that can be true, if that could possibly be true... What would it be? What would be so awful in someone's life? What would be the trait that would make someone an enemy of God? He doesn't leave us guessing. Verse 5 says this, Do you not suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy with jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Let me say it to you plain. John MacArthur says, Here's his translation. Do you think the Bible is really talking for nothing? Do you think that the Bible's message isn't really this? That God has put a spirit into you and he wants you to know him. He wants you to have a relationship with him. And when you don't live that way, in fact, you're an adulterer. you think that he's jealous for no reason? In other words, you think God, when you say that you know him but you don't live like that, do you think he's not going to do anything about it? Do you think God is jealous and he's not going to say anything? do you think that you can continue to go on with your lust and your craving and your desires and your priorities and your agenda and you can go on and on with that and he says, you still think I'm going to let you think you're a Christian? See, a worldly life and all of its impulses bring us into conflict with God and you know what that trait is? James nails it on the head. You know what it's called? Pride. Pride. Pride does two things and I'll be done. Pride does this. Number one, it has a disregard for Scripture. Look what the verse says. Do you think that the Scripture says in vain? And then he quotes in the next verse, Proverbs 3.34. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. See, pride does this. Here's what Scripture says. I can't go on living this way, but I'm going to do it anyways. Pride is someone who comes to a service and hears the message like this today and says, oh, I don't think that's really me. See, pride rejects the truth that when you go on and on as your own self-authority and you really can pretend and fool yourself and deceive yourself into thinking that God's the authority in your life. See, pride rejects the truth that this could be you. And so you might be sitting there this morning as you hear me trying to think of ways that you could dismiss this truth. And see, James would say that's exactly what I'm talking about, that's pride. Pride is a disregard for scripture and what it says about what you're like and what you're really like in your life and who you really reflect in your friendship. But it's also a lack of humility. And I love this ending of the verse six. He says this, but he gives more grace. Aren't you grateful for that little phrase? In spite of you and me, in all of our desires and all of our worldly passions, which make us the enemy of God. And by the way, in verse 4, it says, makes himself the enemy of God. God doesn't make you an enemy, you do. You and I, in our choices, in our sinfulness, in our rebellion, in our disregard for the Bible, all of those choices make us his enemy. He says, even though you've chosen to make me your enemy, I have chosen to put out more grace in spite of that. Who does he give the grace to? Well, that's why. See, I told you at the beginning in chapter three, he was comparing two wisdoms, and God's wisdom is peace, and man's wisdom is war. So he quotes Proverbs 3.34 because it's a wisdom book and he wants to show you that you can reverse it in your life. You've been using worldly wisdom and the way you think and to live and how you raise your kids and how you choose your own life and the morals that you adopted. See, he says you can forfeit, you can overturn the world's wisdom if you'll just adopt God's. Where does that start? God resists the proud. Who does he give his grace to? His more grace, his abundant grace to? He gives it to humble people. But note this. He gives grace to humility, but he fights the proud. That's the word resist. Fight. The word resist is like God has gathered all of his troops, and he's got all of his armies, and he's got his tanks, and he's got all the the, the planes and the bombs. He's got all of that, and he's marshalling it against you this morning. You know why? Because you're too proud. He's trying to get you to humble yourself so you don't have to face him as an enemy. You can face him as a friend. The Puritan John Trapp, you know what he said? He says, there are a lot of humbled people, but not many humble people. You know what he means? God's humbled them. They've lost their job. They've lost their marriage. They've ruined and broken relationships. They've been humbled, but they're still not humble. He says, there are a lot of people that have been made low, but they're not lowly. See, God is trying to, this morning, take your life and your circumstances, and he's brought people and things into your life, and you're trying to get out of them, and you can't understand why they happen this way, and God's trying to not just make you humble. He wants you to be humble. See, we're not getting into it, but verse 7 says, humble yourselves, submit yourselves to God. That's the first thing. See, here's what he says. Humble people get God's grace. But proud people don't. And the word proud is a word, it's a compound word. It means someone who thinks they're above everybody else. See, the proud person will be sitting here this morning and say, yeah, Pastor Walker, yeah, yeah I know some people who need this message. <laughs> I know they do. But see, it's a compound word and the second half of the com is above. See, Proud people think that they're above it. Someone else needs this. Someone else needs some humility, but I don't. Can I tell you, pride cuts you off from God's grace. It cuts you off from his grace. And it makes God your enemy. What kind of grace, Pastor Walker? Saving grace. And that's the worst danger. See, grace. God gives his saving grace His forgiveness, his eternal life. Who does he give it to? Who does he come in and transform and revolutionize their lives from the inside? You know who he does? Humble people. Humble people who are what? Broken over their sin. Repentant over their rebellion against God. That's humility. Well, how can I get this saving grace, Pastor Walker? You know how you get it? John 15 says this. Greater love, Jesus' words, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. You know how you get saving grace? Jesus, God's son, died on the cross to make you his friend, to give you that grace. You have to humble yourself and say, he died for me. He took my. See, I deserve that cross. I deserve that punishment. It was my sin. See, it's my pride. And see, I, I want to try to be God's friend by being religious and going to the Baptist church or the Lutheran church or the Catholic church. See, I, I want to do my own works. If I could just be good enough and I could go through the sacraments or I could get baptized or, I, you know, and I try to be. And see, we, we're so proud. We think we can do it. And God says, see, you're still missing the humility. Saving grace comes to the cross death of Jesus. And that's it. And we're missing it. And some will miss heaven and they'll miss eternity with God. Why? Because they never realize that the only way you can get saved in grace is to humbly admit that Jesus died for my sin and rose again for my justification. He laid down his life for me. Why would he do that? He doesn't want you to be his enemy. He wants you to be his friend. See, Jesus would say this, it's time to unfriend the world. And by faith, put your trust in me. And I'm your only hope of forgiveness. I'm your only hope of heaven. Put your trust in me. And see, we'll be friends. And that will change everything. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, maybe you're here this morning on the main floor or in the balcony. Maybe you come all the time. Maybe this is your first time we have a public invitation we don't do it often but this morning we do because we want to give you the opportunity to unfriend the world and by faith put your trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection to pay for your sins so that he can make you his friend but it would take humility to do that and that's kind of what's good about an invitation because walking an aisle to the front doesn't change anyone but you know what it is it humbles everyone and by doing so, you'll say, Pastor Walker, here's what I'm saying. I'm humbling myself. I recognize my sin for what it is. And I need to un- see, I experience all that conflict you talk about on all those levels. It's me, one or more of them. And I recognize what that marks. I'm a reflection of my friend. And my friend is the world. I get that this morning. But I want to be the friend of Jesus. Can I say, humble yourself? Come forward. Repent of your sins, and Jesus, who loves you, will make you his friend. Would you do that this morning? We're going to sing a closing hymn. I can't think of a better one. What a friend we have in Jesus. Don't wait. Don't wait for the second or third verse. You come. Don't worry what anyone else thinks or who's looking. Humble yourself, and God has grace for you. Father, thank you. We know that you're here this morning. And we're thankful for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace that was demonstrated on the cross when you paid the penalty for our sins. You died for our pride. Our sinfulness, our rebellion. Father, I pray for those in this morning who are wrestling with that even as I speak. Father, that you would humble them and by your grace you would move them by your Holy Spirit that they might put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and no forgiveness, no friendship, eternal friendship in his glorious name. Do all of that, my Lord, for your great glory and honor alone. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. I'll be down front. We're going to sing. Would you just step out and come? I'll have someone take the Bible and show you how you can become the friend of Jesus. We invite you to come as we sing. Let's stand together.